2: Good morning, I'm Catherine Zock, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is clinical professor of psychiatry at UCLA School of Medicine, Dr. Daniel J. Siegel, M.D. Uh, his new book is No Drama Discipline, The Whole Brain Way to Calm the Chaos and Nurture Your Child's Developing Mind. Uh Dr. Siegel is a, the founding director, or the co-director, of the UCLA Mindful Awareness Research Center and executive director of the Mindsight Institute, a graduate of Harvard Medical School. Dr. Siegel is the author of several books, including the New York Times bestseller, Brainstorm. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on the show, Dr. Siegel. Daniel.
3: Thank you, Catherine. It's great to be here with you.
2: Great to have you. Okay, no drama discipline. Well, apparently... No drama, as you're describing discipline, we're talking about disciplining our children, uh, doesn't mean permissiveness, nor does it mean dictatorial control. So I guess my first question is, what does it mean? What is no drama discipline? Well, the idea
3: of the title is to capture, first of all, the importance of looking at discipline in our parenting. And in, in our modern culture, a lot of people, friends of mine, people I work with, uh, have interpreted the word discipline as punishment. And so the word discipline actually means to teach. To be a disciple is to be a student, not a prisoner. And so what Tina Bryson, my co-author, and I wanted to do in this book is to look at discipline and reclaim its original meaning, which is how do we teach? Because teaching is essentially what we do as parents. Uh, and the no drama part means that When you have a strategy based on science that tells you how to offer teaching, then there doesn't have to be the high drama that's so often there when parents are in conflicts with kids of all ages that explode either on the child side or the parent side in a bunch of dramatics that doesn't need to be happening. So the word no drama was to remind us that there is a way of teaching, providing structure, of allowing your child to actually grow and thrive with a strategy to discipline where people don't have to be exploding all the time.
2: All right, Daniel, that sounds difficult, or does it, it sounds like do we have to, I mean, what kind of, I mean, we need to read the book, obviously. But is this a simple process? Does this come easily to parents? And how did we get as parents, and I raised three boys. They're now in their 30s. But how did we get into this kind of either being very dictatorial parents or very permissive and, and lots of drama? Uh, how did, can we start with that? How did that evolve? And Absolutely. is it simple to be able to do this no-drama discipline? Or do we have to have a lot of tools, experience, education?
3: Well, I think it's kind of a matter of being um, informed, which is what the book is about, and then given steps, which the book offers, to providing this kind of um, low-drama, no-drama way of, of teaching your child. So to start with the research, as you're pointing out, Catherine, there's a whole study of what's called authoritarian parenting, which is where you act like a dictator, versus the other extreme, which is passive, where you just let anything happen. And then there's the middle road, which is authoritative, where you are the authority, so you provide structure, but you also provide connection. So that, that set of research shows that children develop best when their parents are authority figures, not dictators, and not just passive and not making any interventions. So that's the science. One example of this that's become kind of heated lately in the uh, social media world is the whole issue of timeouts. So, timeouts from a research point of view are well established, supported ways of providing infrequent, supportive times of connecting with your child when inappropriate behavior is happening, and then introducing time of a break from what's going on when inappropriate behavior is happening, and then inviting the child in connection with you to explore what happened. Now, That's how an academic person, a researcher, has stated what timeouts are, and it's been proven to be effective and really useful. However, in actual practice out in the world, the word timeout has come to be used in many families as you're going to be put in solitary confinement, sometimes for extended periods of time, often very frequently, and very often not with connecting to a parent who then invites a child to explore what in the world happened. So the use of timeout, not as researchers and wonderful academic clinicians have explored its incredible usefulness as a way of offering teaching to a child, but actually the way it's been practiced is as a form of punishment. And so what Tina Bryson and I have done is, and we explored this in in, uh, various outlets, is to say, let's look at timeouts as they're actually practiced, not as the researchers say that should be done. And let's make sure that instead of it just being a punishment of solitary confinement, which people use the word timeout for, let's call it a taking a break or a time in where you're actually inviting this infrequent time of limited periods of taking a break to then be in connection with the parent where you're actually exploring what happened inside, what the feelings were, what the intentions were, what the thoughts were of the child. And this time in... Maybe what the originators of the original use of timeout were all about, but the way it's been practiced is punishment, not teaching.
2: So yeah, that's and an I see a lot of you young parents using that timeout, but I have two questions related to that. First of all, sometimes the timeout, let's say if it's in one's own home, the kid goes into their room and the timeout is kind of like, it's great. They're in their room. They're doing, you know, their, they have all, this, uh, all their, uh, their, their cell phones. They've got all their, their TV, whatever they have, you know, all their equipment and stuff, and they're having a great time. So it's really not necessarily a punishment, Uh, but, and also number two, how does this work, and and I hear what you're saying. You want to really be able to connect with the, your child about what the issue is and whatever they've done wrong. But what about? And I know with my boys, some of the misbehavior wasn't done at home or in in a private situation, but it's out in public. I mean, let's say you're at a restaurant or you're you know you can be in a public place. You can be in the library, wherever you are with your kid. And then what do you? You can't necessarily talk to them at that time, but they are really misbehaving. Not necessarily a tantrum, but they are you know over the top and terms of their behavior. So then what do you do?
3: Okay, well, this is a great example. So Catherine, let me ask you to walk through this with me. In the case, let's say you're in a restaurant and your son, how old is he in, in your memory of this? How old? We
2: yeah. can just I mean, with the three, I can give probably, let's say an a, a eight-year-old. Okay, so an eight-year-old
3: old eight. is talking really loudly or speaking inappropriately to you or to uh, his brother or something like that. And what is it that you would like your 8-year-old to actually learn from what's about to happen with you?
2: Well, in my situation, I'm thinking back to the, when they were 8 years old, I want, them to, I want them to learn that there are certain ways to behave in a restaurant, uh, perhaps that are different than when they're home with their brothers in the backyard and, and playing. So this is a, a new kind of... Yeah, I'll stop there.
3: No, no, that's beautiful. So okay, yeah. So you have in your mind, so you're aware, your intention is for ultimately your son to learn that in this setting of a restaurant, you can't do what maybe you do at home, which is permitted, but there's a different context. Now, to teach that, this is where using the concept of discipline in its original definition, teaching, means that you're going to try to convey that lesson to your child. Now, if you just punish him and say, okay, when you get home, you have a half-hour timeout, and that's it and you, you're angry and your child sees you're angry and then he feels, through connecting with you, angry at you or upset or feels humiliated at that moment, you may stop his behavior in the restaurant and you may think it's actually working and then he goes home and he's just in timeout. But most parents doing it with that strategy would be actually just teaching him nothing. They'd be just, he'd realize that what I did in that moment was something my mom got mad at and she gets upset and look how angry she was and I'm kind of mad at her, and okay, that's that. But there's no generalization of what the specific issue you're trying to teach was. So instead, you could say, listen, Johnny, this is not appropriate. So you show him your emotions. You say, this is making me feel really upset right now, and you need to stop. When we get home, we're going to talk about why this isn't right, but right here we're going to finish our dinner and then then go home. So then you go home, and instead of just making him have 30 minutes of time out, which a lot of parents use as, you know, the solitary confinement punishment that they think is the negative consequence that's going to end the behavior. That's not what the originators of time out had in mind. And what time in implies then is you want to explore inside of Johnny. You say, okay, let's talk about what happened at the restaurant. He goes, what do you mean I was just doing what I do at home? And you go, I get it. That must be kind of confusing for you where you can – you know, goof off with your brother really loudly at home, but then we're in the restaurant, I get upset at you, and I can understand why that may be a little confusing. So that's what we call connecting first. And then he sees you get him. You're not just yelling at him. You're not just putting him in solitary. You get what's going on with him. And then you say, I can understand why it's confusing because you're just doing what we allow at home at the restaurant, but here's what I want you to understand. There's a lot of other people in a public place speaking really loudly and talking like that to your brother, is feeling uncomfortable, not just for me, but for people on the table next to us. They can't hear each other. So there's a setting in which you have to figure out, what am I in now? Am I at home or in a restaurant? And you have to adjust your behavior appropriately, and I will help you do that next time. So let's come up with a word. I mean, that sounds like,
2: obviously, Daniel, really effective and a a great way to do it and to connect with your child and to teach, you know, it's a teaching moment. One of the problems, though, and as a social worker and maybe as a parent, too, by the time – you get home from the restaurant and all this behavior has happened. A whole slew of other things have happened. And if you're sitting there with three kids, or uh, three boys, and then you get in the car and you come home, the time between what happened in the restaurant and the misbehavior, and then when you get home... on some level, uh, I'll speak as a parent, I guess, it was like, well, okay, I forgot about that because now something else is taking precedence. It's it's, (laughs) it's a constant, you know, know I'm challenging you, but that, you know, in the, in actuality, that does happen. And so then you forget about the restaurant situation and you've got a new one that's being confronted with.
3: Absolutely. Well, that, we can get distracted for sure. And so you can, you can take time and even walk outside with your son at that moment if you want to, or just take him aside and explain this to him. I guess my, my approach, and you know, it's, it's what we put in the book, and it's you know, something Tina and I really uh, think deeply is supported by understanding the power of relationships to motivate people so that rather than, than what's usually used as punishment, we want to use connection to inspire people. And because we have these very rich, complex brains that are capable of learning, if you can hold on to it to the time you get home your son is going to know what happened there. And we have this thing called language where you can, unlike what you do with a dog or, you know, if you have like a rat or mice that you're trying to train, where it has to be done immediately, since we have language and extended learning, you can actually say, you know, an hour ago when when we were in the restaurant, do you remember that? Yes. Well, you were talking so loudly. What, What was going on? He can use language and memory To tell you, and because we're humans and not just rats, we actually can learn by talking to each other. And this is what, when I see busy, busy parents, like you're describing, I see parents who are overwhelmed with everything going on in the world, and I get it. And what's sad for me is that the connection that is created, let's say, by sharing stories and the meaning of things, by communicating emotion with words and also direct expressions, these ways we connect with our kids are being lost. And all the hubbub of everyone's being busy, busy, busy. So, what No Drama Discipline is trying to do is say, "Hey, it's all about relationships." And even the concept of time out is really about relationships, not about solitary confinement. So, let's reclaim it. If you want to call it time in, that's great. Whatever you want to call it, let's just go inward. So, you talk about your son's feelings. You don't just react to his behavior.
2: I agree with you, and I think, and I want to go over some of the other myths that you debunk in the book because another one that's kind of related to this. Again, I think connection, connection, connection is the issue and I want to ask you what you think actually all this chaos in parenting because parents are so... Uh, overwhelmed what the consequences are going to be for these kids and families. Maybe that's a question later on, but this other one of the other myths that you talk about that consistency is crucial because you do hear that. I mean, consistency is crucial. However, you're going to discipline your children. You must be consistent, but you say that's not quite true.
3: Yeah. I mean, the idea of consistency for some parents is rigidity. That is, they rather than thinking about the spirit of the law, if you will, they're thinking about the letter of the law. And it's fascinating because it actually relates to two different parts and sides of the brain that would prefer the letter of the law in the left and the spirit of the law on the right. So what we're asking parents to consider is that consistency is great when it's with flexibility. Now, that may seem like a contradiction, but it's actually not. When you look at the essence of what you're trying to achieve in your teaching, the deeper lesson you're trying to convey the way you want your child to really learn is consistent. That is true. That's your true north. That's what you follow. But the different conditions that happen in different settings, like I had one father, I'll give you an example, who, you know, he was really, really busy, and I suggested he be the one to read his son a story at night. So he started doing that. Well, his son was so amazed that his father was taking time to be with him that, of course, he asked for another story. So when it got to the third story, he said, absolutely not. And the son said, how about, you know, half a story? So it was two and a half. And he said, no. I said, two and it's two. And the son got really agitated. And I said, well, if you just read him like a one-minute half story, this kid is in love with being with you. And you would have, the whole idea of you're teaching him that you're there with him, you're connecting with him, and if you give him half a minute, it's not going to break any rules. He said, I have to be consistent. And I said, no, you've got to be, you know, consistent but flexible. And, you know, ultimately he heard that, and their relationship is absolutely beautiful now because he could see sometimes his son just really needs a little more. You know, it's like a hug. You know, you give a 10-second hug. Maybe a kid needs a 20-second hug. So you don't say, well, I said I was going to give a 10-second hug. That's the consistent thing. The hug is the consistency. Sometimes you have to be flexible in the
2: length of the hug. Yeah, Uh, flexibility, absolutely, because I think rigidity is the worst thing that we can get into. And I think another thing with parents... some parents tend to do. If you have more than one child, uh, you sort of ex- have your expectations for all your children are the same, and you can get into even that whole consistency pattern with and doing exactly the same thing with each child. And each child needs something different from you.
3: Totally, and that's a beautiful way of describing it, Catherine, because. You know, there's something you can call parental presence, which means you're open and available, and you try to let go of your judgments and expectations. So if you've got three boys in your case, you know, each one of them is going to have a different temperament. And you've got to be present for the individual differences that each of them bring to you. And if you come with expectations like any son who's 8 years old has to act this way, and as they pass through their 8-year-old period, you couldn't apply that to each one of them the same, right? So you've got to be open and present. And in a way, and I talk about this in this book called Brainstorm for, you know, looking at the adolescent period, parental presence is everything. It's really the key to the whole thing. And in presence, you're, you're basically available to whatever emotional Things are going on inside of you, whatever thoughts you might have. You're aware of your history, and that's you know this whole inside-out approach. And then there's your child, and what your child or adolescent is bringing to you— their emotions, the meaning of things—and you know this is—it's interesting. This is a kind of parenting that requires a kind of internal uh, resilience. And the good news about this is, it's good for you as a parent, as well as being great for your kid parental presence is everything, and it's not something you can just put in a manual that you would do research on and say, yes, this is exactly how you do it. It's really about the intention of the parent. So even when you think about something like, you know, consistency, or let's say timeouts, the whole idea is, is parental presence behind it? Or is this a parent who's freaking out and screaming and yelling at the top of their lungs, take a timeout." You know, is that what's going on? Or is the parent there present saying, you need to take a break from what's happening now because clearly you can't control your behavior. And then in three minutes after you calm down, let's talk about what happened. That we would call a time in. And if you want to call that a time out, that's fine. But the issue is your presence as a parent, not your fury, but your receptivity, not your reactivity. And then from that receptive place, you can do all sorts of things to break, of the flow of inappropriate behavior, like with taking a time in or taking a break. And then with that break, you then say, let's go back and see what happened there. So I can really understand it. And that kind of connection, because it is connection, connection, connection. In the end, when children enter adolescence, the research shows the best thing for them is the kind of connection you had with them during their pre-adolescent period. And then... They can learn to make new connections with you that change as they go through adolescence, and they make new changes with their friends. So that kind of connection is something that just keeps on giving. It's a gift that keeps on giving.
2: Daniel, and it's Dr. Daniel Siegel, M.D., Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine. Daniel, but what do you say to these parents who, and, and and I mean, a lot of, they are not with their, and now I'm talking about just in terms of sheer time, they're not with their children during the day most of the time because both parents are working, they come home, there's very little time to be with their children, uh, they're overwhelmed, uh, they are, uh, it's very difficult sometimes for them to even sit down with their child and have a, a conversation even when their child isn't Um, misbehaving. How do you convince parents that this parental presence is so important when they have so little time to do it? I mean, and and the second part of that question, I'm in New York City a lot, and I see many, many of these children are with their nannies. I mean, they're described as nannies. I'm not sure they're real nannies, babysitters, who are wheeling the kids around or walking the kids around who have no connection to these kids. So that's all day long, or very little, I should say. Uh, What's the effect on that kind of parenting.
3: You know, Catherine, you're How many questions te- did I ask te- you?
2: Three?
3: What's that? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you.
2: I said, how many questions did I ask you? Well, I'm I not sure. Like two yeah. and a
3: half. <laughs> oh, <laughs> two and a half, okay. Um, so I was saying, you know, your questions and the way you're describing are bringing tears to my eyes because, you know, this is
2: exactly,
3: you know, exactly the issue of our modern era is that everyone has become, not everyone, but... My daughter, I'm hearing my daughter's voice in my head. Don't say everyone. It's not everyone. So, okay. (laughs) Many people are feeling Uh overwhelmed and busy, busy, busy. There's lots of reasons for it. You asked that before, and so that would be question three embedded in your question, why is this happening? So let me just start with that. You know, we have more information streaming at us more quickly. Things are changing more quickly. The world is in rapid flux, and everyone's – not everyone – Many people are picking that up, and it's creating an agitated sense of um, fear and dread and unease. Um, In addition to just being literally overwhelmed with the sheer amount of stuff, stuff we're being flooded with is is kind of is upsetting and terrifying. And whatever world you're in, if you're just aware of it, um, it's it's flooding us in many ways. So it's a very common feeling to be literally internally feeling very reactive instead of receptive. So the brain has these two states, reactive or receptive. Receptive is where presence comes from, and very often we're more in the reactive state of wanting to fight back or flee, or we just wanna freeze or even faint and collapse. These ways of being reactive get in the the way of being present. Then you add on top of that exactly what you're saying, where people just to, to make it work are really busy, and people are overscheduling their kids too, not to mention the fact that many of us, adults and children that were adolescents are sleep deprived, and that makes us not at the top of our game. so in all these ways, uh, it's a state of reactivity now, when you blend that with the sheer few numbers of minutes that adolescents and children are able to spend in connection with their parents, and when I mean connection, it's exactly how you're saying it, where you would actually feel close instead of someone's with you that doesn't really know you, or you'd feel close in communicating instead of someone being distracted with their smartphone or their computer um, or exhausted. Um, These deep, authentic connections are what we thrive on, and they allow conversations to happen that are meaningful. They allow a feeling of fullness to exist where you feel like you belong to a, a, something larger than just your body, you know, you're a part of a, a membership in a family or a set of friends. And and my big concern is the overwhelm people feel commonly is putting us in this reactive state where as children grow and adolescents grow in that setting. It's a very different way of living than living with connection. And when you look at all the research, the scientific research on how medically healthy you are, how mentally healthy you are, how happy you are, and even how long you live, one of the major factors that support each of those in a positive way is your connected relationships, your supportive social network. And so this isn't just a matter of, oh, well, we don't have connections. Connections are the same as well-being. And so people are so stressed out, and in many ways you can wonder about the challenges to mental health these days because these authentic connections are missing. What do you do about it? You start with your own awareness as a parent that you're reactive, not receptive, so you can move yourself to this place of presence, and then you take the time not to do things but to be with your child. So we're too busy doing, 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 and not just being and allowing things to unfold as they happen. So what you're parents. saying,
2: Daniel, is yep. really there's some serious consequences uh, in the future if we don't establish these authentic and I keep I th- not just connections but authentic connections with our children. It, it, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking perhaps the reason for uh, kids drinking, uh, having sex in middle school, uh, all you know, addictions, drugs, all of that is a consequence of not having these authentic connections with your children when they're younger.
3: Well, you know, you, the, the drive to either numb yourself out because it feels so anxiety-provoking and, and <clears throat> this lack of meaning and connection can feel really bad, so you numb yourself out with drugs, or through precocious sex, you think you're going to get connected and you get all this stimulation from sexual activity, but actually in the end, that kind of activity without emotional authentic connection feels really empty. Uh, And people just can go from person to person to person hooking up without it being a true authentic sense of connection. So either way, you're either numbing yourself out or thinking you're getting what you need, but it's actually just a diversion. And what we need to do is bring back the art of connection, the art of conversation, the art of authentic ways of being with each other not just scheduling a kid's life so they're doing here, they're doing there, they're doing there, they're doing there because you're desperate to get them into some school that will get them into some other school that will get them into, what, like a super-duper graveyard or something. There's this agitated sense like you've got to get somewhere and do, 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 rather than the art of being. And this is, this is really what the art of connection is about, is I'm just here with you. And this, we're not trying to achieve anything. We're just being in connection Deeply, authentically with each other, and that's something that you know you can develop as a parent first. You can do that. You know, all the books I write on parenting, the ins- parenting from the inside out with Mary Hartzell, or brainstorm, you know, or, or whole brain child. They all, with Tina Bryson, we all uh, have put this effort in to re bring back the art of just being in connection with your child or adolescent.
2: Well, and we have a couple minutes left, so that's not too long, so I just want to kind of wind up with, I mean, you're probably, you would be the good example. I mean, parents are so concerned about making sure that their kids get into the best school and get the best education and have a and profession. Now, you're a psychiatrist, you're a physician. How did that work for you? Well,
3: you know, I, I have a 20-year-old and uh, an almost 25-year-old, and um Right now, I can tell you that the connection is fantastic. And, of course, there are stormy times, especially during adolescence, and I write a bit about them in, in the Brainstorm book. Um, and in Parenting from the Inside Out or my book Mindsight, you'll see wild, difficult times I had with my own emotional state and connecting. And you know, So there's no such thing as perfect parenting. Uh, let's put it out there. But there is the intention to be present, the effort to be in connection. And right now, I can say it's magnificent. I feel so blessed to be able to connect with my two, um, they're older adolescents now, uh, but in their, their early 20s, you know, but uh, the connection we have at this time is fantastic. And I think it's because my wife and I really put the time in to just be with them, to be in connection with them by being present.
2: Yeah. I think that's well said and a really good uh, uh, theme to end on, and I appreciate your being on the show today. It was a great conversation. I want to mention the book again, No Drama Discipline, The Whole Brain Way to Calm the Chaos and Nurture Your Child's Developing Mind. Uh, we, you can, uh, Dr. Daniel Siegel, and you can buy his book online, bookstores everywhere, and Daniel, what uh, website should we go to if we want more information about you? Know, you know, we have a bunch book.
3: of things for parents and other folks at drdansiegel.com, which is D-R-D-A-N- S-I-E-G-E-L dot com. Great.
2: Thanks so much.
3: Thanks, Catherine. It's a pleasure.
2: Great. Uh, We're going to take a short break now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute.
0: surprise you. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance is the host of People to People working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety.
2: We're back, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is poet and playwright Stephen Fife, author of The 13th Boy, a memoir of education and abuse. Stephen is a graduate of Sarah Lawrence College and Columbia's School of the Arts and has written for The New York Times, The Village Voice, and The New Republic. Welcome to the show, Stephen, nice to have you on this morning.
1: Thank you very much. Glad to be here.
2: Great. And I, I, I just recently saw an article about you in uh, People magazines, which some of my listeners perhaps have also read. But um, The Thirteenth Boy, a memoir of education and abuse. Boy, um, this your book has been described as a compelling, soul-bearing narrative of the, your experience of education and abuse at the prestigious Horace Mann School in New York City. So we can just start with that because, you know, when you hear about Horace Mann, and I'm one of those who did go to private school myself, so, um, you know, what you're saying, uh, not that I was aware necessarily of any abuse, but it does kind of ring true. So um, the Horace Mann School, I think most people think, oh, my gosh, you know, this is, as you know, prestigious, School smart, well-educated, you know, all of the pluses that come with that kind of a school. How can this abuse, uh, which happened to you and not just to you, but several, um, many other students, how did that happen? What happened? What happened to you? Uh,
1: well, what happened to me is I got um, targeted by a, uh, a very charismatic uh, and um, certainly, uh, a strange um, teacher who was very knowledgeable in the field that I was interested in, which was writing. Uh, he just seemed to know everything. And um, uh, at, uh, at 16, I was um, an aspiring poet. Uh, I was writing a lot, as, as many people do, uh, whether they, you know, turn out to be poets or not in later life. Uh, but in adolescence, that's, you know, certainly not uncommon to, um, you know, to be moved to write a lot of poetry. Um, and, uh, he was very praising and, uh, and also, um, you know, very revered by, um, by other students who were friends of mine. And, uh, and he kind of fostered a competition for his approval. And, uh, you know I won that competition and uh, almost lost my life <laughs> so uh, he um, he kind of ran a, um, a a sort of cult within the school and um, and the school really enabled him uh, by having no real oversight on the individual teachers uh, to um, to continue to choose uh, uh, one or two students from each class that uh, uh, that he would groom in his way um, to revere him, and um, a, you know, and, and to have a kind of personality worship, hero worship. And um, I resisted him for quite a while, um, but eventually uh, he did. Uh, break me down uh, enough to take, uh, for me to take up his invitation to come to his apartment and, um, and while I resisted uh, his um, repeated attempts uh, to have sex with me, uh, he um, it definitely got into my head. And um, and when I finally left him and rejected him, uh, he tried to do his best to drive me to suicide.
2: And so, how did he do that? I mean, he had this, obviously, as, it, I mean, as you're describing it, I mean, he had this kind of compelling control over you, at least for a while, right?
1: He, uh, he did.
2: And, and you were... He did.
1: Well, he, he, you know, it, it's, it's so... Um, uh, that's why it's... It really did take me a, you know, um, a, a full book to describe how something like this happens, because it is, it is very individual. And, and also, it's so um, you know, different uh, a time than now. Um, e- while uh, these, these things absolutely go on now, and we hear about them every day, um, we didn't hear anything back then. I mean, there so everything was no, back then
2: was in secrecy. I mean, I think that's right. I, you, to, you I'm quoting you. I think that if you secrecy benefits the abuser, um good thing. Yeah, which I, uh, which is true. So uh, and everything there was is. Loads, yeah, there
1: was so much secrecy back then um, because there, you know, there was no internet. There, there were no uh, surveillance type. You know, uh, there were no cameras on people, uh, which, you know, we, we may have. Uh, mixed feelings about, but they do, uh, you know, affect people's behavior, knowing that they're being looked at, Um, but there, you know, not only was there no oversight from the school, but there was, uh, you know, there was no information uh, coming to us as students growing up in this society that such things, you know, that adults can do such things.
2: Also, uh, what about t- and talking to each other, speaking to each other, getting support from each other, maybe sharing what's happening to you with another right. student?
1: Right. Well, um, that's, that can happen, and an and, and ideal situation would happen. This um, At the time that I went to Horace Mann, it was an all-boys school. Uh, now it isn't. It is, um, it is a co-ed school, and I, and, and, and I should say, That I think the situation in Horace Mann now is improved. So that, um, but between 1967 and 1997, for those 30 years, uh, there was a terrible problem at the school.
2: Do you think, was Horace Mann unique in that way? I mean, I'm thinking about a lot of the, you know, obviously many private schools and uh, with not only day students but with the boarders. Uh, Do you think? Horace Mann was unique during that period of time, or that this was something that was more common, just as we've been talking about, just more common than we thought at all schools of this type?
1: Right. Well, that's a great question, Catherine. That's a really great question, because um, I I should say first that um, I had no idea that anybody else was being abused. I thought I was the only one. Um, So... um, It was only when um, Amos Kamal published an article in the New York Times Magazine section in 2012 that uh, I became aware that this was a systemic problem at Horace Mann. As it turned out, there were over 15 teachers who were abusing students to some degree or other on the campus. Now, Mr. Berman, Robert Berman, the teacher um, who was abusive to me, uh, was just one of those teachers, um, and he wasn't even the most prolific abuser among those teachers. So um, I can't speak specifically to other schools, but I agree with you that um, during especially that time uh, when uh, there was a certain... um, a laxness, a, an obliviousness to um, you know to what was happening to students um, outside of the purview of the classroom itself—that um, that it was a pretty ideal atmosphere for a predatory teacher to take so advantage. of you're saying of the
2: there was an—I mean there was a climate of abuse. That's what I'm hearing you say at Harriet Mants.
1: You are so right. That is yeah. exactly what it was. You are so right, it, it just um, it was so shocking to me in 2012 when I, I mean because I had come what happened to me um, as I say and, and, I'm, and, and I'm really not being melodramatic in any way to say that um, uh, I was very close to suicide for a number of years and um, and only because I did have the outlet of writing. Um, that helped me at first, and then even that, I couldn't be in a room by myself uh, without, um, you know, w- without being besieged by thoughts of, of, um, you know, of, of doing away with myself. Uh, because of how this teacher had completely undermined my sense of self, he took away my identity. So I, I really had such insecurity about uh, who I was anymore. And it was only after... Years of therapy uh, that I was able to uh, recover my sense of self, and um, and I and when I saw that this is something that, that didn't just happen to me, uh, but it happened to uh, a, over over forty students that we know of. I think I think the count actually is sixty-three at this time of students at Horace Mann. Have come forward, and that is only a fraction of the number of students who undoubtedly uh, suffered abuse during that time. And uh, so it's really kind of mind boggling, I think, um, how long this went on and how many students were affected. And and this climate that you spoke about uh, went really unchecked for so long.
2: Right. Now, I guess, fast forward with, you know, 2014. What? Right. Yeah. You know, what are you, well? obviously writing this book. That's the most obvious. But what would you say? How can we? I mean, there are lots of safety valves that we have in place now so that this doesn't happen in the same way that it happened to you and on such a mass of you know all of these students but what would right. you Did say I... to you know how if you're talking to other students who other boarding students and at boarding schools for instance and and I know that this is has been a I don't know about pattern, but has, you know, this, these, this kind of abuse occurs, what would you say to them? How could you help them? What, what would they do? How could somebody help you when you were 16 years old? Right. Well, the
1: problem of being 16 years old sometimes is that you think you know everything already. Yeah. Real, I really did. At 16, I really felt um, in charge of my life. Um, I, I felt secure in the sense that i you know I love to write, and I seemed to you know really know um uh, who i was and uh and so I didn't feel you know the need to um to have anybody advise me on on the wisdom of my decisions, uh, which were some very bad decisions that I made but again um my decisions were manipulated by somebody who was a master manipulator. And that is, that is why it is so important uh, for friends of um, a person who is going through that kind of pattern of abuse uh, to speak up. Um, he, there's a feeling of not wanting to betray your friend and, and that, well, whatever he or she is doing is his or her own business. Um, but often the person being abused is incapable of stopping the abuse because it is a pattern. Um, if you are manipulated by somebody as uh, deftly as I was by, um, uh, by Robert Berman, uh, you really you, you think you know what you're doing. I thought I knew what I was doing, but I didn't. I really was... Um, being lured into uh, a, a, uh, a maze that was meant to, um, uh, to make me feel helpless and to make me feel like I had to depend completely on this teacher uh, and his opinion of me. And uh, that's, that's what's so insidious about it.
2: Yeah, Insidious, and I think one of the things to remember, and you're right, 16-year-olds know everything or they think they know everything and really don't want any advice, but I think one thing, as I'm listening to you, to keep in mind is, remember, I mean, the abuser has a lot more experience than you do at this. They are really good at their game. They know what they're doing. They've usually exactly. done it before, and you're really a neophyte. Um, I oh, don't know yeah. how you get... Yeah.
1: You really, you really, uh, you know, it it seems to be a one-to-one relationship that you have, and that's the whole thing about the abuser, is it's very personal. They make you feel... Uh, I, I, I was not on good terms with my parents at that time. I have three younger brothers, and, um, you know, my, uh, my mom really had her hands full with raising four boys. Yeah, I'm the oldest of those four boys, and, um, and I was really looking... For uh, my my dad, you know, is a very successful businessman, but not a very good parent, and certainly not emotionally connected uh, to what was going on with his kids. So um, again, I was a prime candidate for uh, an abuser, a predatory teacher like Robert Berman to come in and use his wiles to wedge himself between me and my parents. And make himself into my new parents. And that's what he was trying to do. And as you say, he had experience with that before. He had seduced other boys. And so I was just another in a line. And, and, uh, and what became, you know, unfortunately, you know, a long line of, of boys that he seduced until he finally left the school in, um, in 1979. But, I mean, he was at the school for 20 years.
2: He left in
1: 19. What happened to him? What happened to him? Well, um, I would love to say that that, um, something terrible happened to him, but um, unfortunately, um, some of the boys that he seduced uh, were from wealthy families, and uh, he convinced them to buy him a house in upstate New York. Uh, where he resides now uh, in a large mansion, uh, he has enormous amounts of money, and um, and he basically lives in this uh, gigantic mansion uh, and hasn't had to work since he left Horace Mann in 1980.
2: Wow, that's uh, there's no retribution, oh, or the way you're
1: <laughs> none. There's none. I mean, he he published a novel which he thought was going to be his. Great uh, calling card to success, and the novel was awful. It's an unreadable um, mess of um, haughty and, and arrogant uh, sayings on his part. I mean, it's not even a, a narrative that you can read. Uh, at least I didn't find it to be one. But, I mean, he is, uh, he's, simply a, you know, he's simply been allowed to get away with everything he did. And, of course, that's, that's um, really unsettling, both <laughs> to me personally. And I think, uh, you know, in a social sense, we, we really feel the need that somebody who violated uh, the inner lives and, and, and diverted the lives of so many people um, into such a dark place uh, should pay some price for that, and yet he hasn't.
2: How do you get over, to me, I'm listening to you, I would be so enraged, so angry. And then, you know, like you're describing, he's living in some mansion in upstate New York. Um, And how, just you personally, I mean, I think, as you said, writing the book and have the ability to write this kind of a book is helpful. But what else? To be able to get over that, that
1: rage. That's why, why, I think that's why people, you know, I think that's why philosophy was originally (laughs) developed. To come to terms with the fact that the world is not always a very just place, and um, you know, uh, it's it's not satisfying in the in the you know in the kind of law and order sense that we have of, of how the world should work. But again, I, I was enraged for many years, and I did, uh, you know, harbor dark fantasies of my own retribution against him. Um, as did uh, you w- after this. Um, Revelation came out in 2012 of of how many um, how many kids and I and, and it wasn't just boys uh, because after the school went coed uh, in the late 1970s um, several girls were abused by other teachers uh, but the um, the majority of the abuse came uh, against boys because it was often by teachers who were Continuing to teach there over a prolonged period of time, um, and again, there was simply no oversight. No teacher was ever let go from Horace Mann because of his abusive behavior, um, and, and I use his because all the abusers were men. There were none of the abusers were female teachers. They were all male teachers. Yeah, um, I
2: think statistically, I think it bears out in most cases. Not that women can't be abusers, but they usually are men.
1: Right, right. I mean, there, there. You know, there, there are certainly stories, and, and especially now of, of um, you know, of, of women teachers. Uh, you know, it, but it's uh, it's very much it's very unusual. It's it's the exception, and not the rule. And um, and I think here that um, uh, you know that when I when I met I met uh, a few of the other. Boys who came after me uh, who were um, targeted by Berman and seduced, and, um, and he was much more successful with them than he had been with me. Uh, so I saw what would have happened to me if I had indeed allowed him, uh, you know, to control my, um, my actions as he wanted to. And but to, Steve, uh, when you, you know, say
2: more successful, we have three minutes left, but when you say more sure. successful with them yeah. than with you, what do you mean?
1: Well, I mean, um, uh, he raped them. He uh, he had them move in with him, and he became their parent, their lover, really their everything. Um, in the case of one boy, he uh, he went to Columbia University, which was near, you know, Horace Mann, and um, and he lived with Berman. And, and, and he took all these courses that he hated because Berman told him that's what he should do. And it was only in his senior year that he finally came to his senses and he, and he left. But he's still um, very damaged and trying to get over what happened to him uh, under, you know, under Berman's uh, uh, so-called tutelage.
2: So there's something about you. You have a certain. It sounds to me a certain, a very, a certain inner strength. I mean that you were not able to um, get engaged in the same way that they did. I mean even more horrifically than you did, like just because of who you are.
1: Well, thanks. Yeah, I, it's partly that and partly because, uh, quite honestly, um, I, I wasn't a virgin. I had had, uh, I, I, I had had some. Uh, sexual experience uh, with girls at that time, and um, and it was really because I had done things that I was not really able to emotionally process that he was able to uh, get a hold on me in the first place. But at a certain point, I knew that you know that he didn't. I didn't want him for what he wanted me to be. I knew what I wanted him. I wanted him to be the ideal parent. The ideal father, the one I didn't have, but um, but I did not want to go down the path that he wanted me to go down. So I did know enough to know that.
2: Well, I want to. We've, we. It's the end of the interview. I could go on. It's a, obviously a, a, a fascinating story and something that listeners need to hear and hear more about. The Thirteenth Boy, a memoir of education and abuse. Stephen spice Uh, You can buy it at bookstores everywhere, online. Um, Can you give us a website to go to as well, Stephen?
1: Sure. Well, it's on Amazon um, under the title The 13th Boy, and it is on um, the publisher's website, uh, which is um, uh, com. Thank
2: you. Thanks so much for being on the show today.
1: Absolutely, Catherine. Wonderful talking to you.
2: Wonderful talking to you. We're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week. We'll see you next Wednesday.
1: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America Channel.